0: Hello and welcome to this podcast for CPD Online. My name is Jennifer Powell. I'm a higher trainee in general adult psychiatry and I'm the trainee editor. Today I'm going to be talking with Dr Peter Rice about alcohol use and self-detox during the COVID pandemic. We will be talking about how to advise patients with alcohol dependency on how to safely manage their intake during the lockdown, particularly for people who wish to cut down or stop and may not have the usual inpatient or community support from our services. So, Peter, thanks for volunteering to come on the podcast today. My pleasure. I wondered if you might be able to start by introducing yourself, explaining a bit about your background and your interest in this topic.
1: So, yeah, I'm Peter Rice. I'm a uh, psychiatrist and I worked in uh, an alcohol treatment service in um, Tayside in Scotland um, and came to be a comprehensive uh, response to, to, to alcohol harm. Um, and as part of that work I got more and more interested in prevention as, as, as my time went on in that post uh, and probably about six years ago now I moved over to work in policy. i have been Part of a group of doctors in Scotland who established an a, a organisation called Scottish Health Action on Alcohol Problems, SHAP, um, really because we were concerned about the rising rates of alcohol harm in Scotland. So that's what I've been doing for the past six years and we've, I think, had a fairly successful time in Scotland in managing to establish some good evidence based policies um, minimum unit prices, the best known of them, but also things like an alcohol brief intervention program, changes to the way that alcohol is marketed and sold. Um, and so that's been my, my work for the past few years has really been in, in, in policy, but I had many years in clinical practice before then. It became clear at the start of COVID lockdown that alcohol services were an early casualty. So the community supports home detoxification services, the inpatient NHS units of which we have a number in Scotland were, were closing down and being used for other purposes. So we felt that there was a need to put out advice for patients at home who uh, perhaps would normally have had access to an alcohol service. Um, and so as from our Royal Royal Colleges Group in Scotland, we put together some advice, which included self-management advice for people who are at risk of problems with withdrawal.
0: Great, thank you. Um, And we're going to come on to talking about those guidelines. Uh, But just before we do, I wondered if you're aware of evidence at the moment about whether the social distancing restrictions are impacting on people's drinking habits in general. Is it do you think that people are drinking more, or drinking less, or could that vary?
1: A good question, and, and the answer is both more and and less. Um, so the the best evidence that we have is from first of all the overall sales data. Look as if the increase in in off sales have just about compensated for the closure of pubs. So. It's really like gold dust to, to get good sales data from the industry. They tend not to, 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 to want to share that. But from what we can gather, it looks like there's maybe been about a 25% increase in off sales and that just about compensates for the stopping of alcohol sales in, in, in bars and restaurants and clubs. So the overall population consumption looks like it hasn't changed much, but there's really just one survey out that had elements both in England and, and Scotland that came up with similar messages that light drinkers are drinking less and heavy drinkers are drinking more. So I think the best evidence we have at the moment uh, is that drinking patterns are becoming more polarised. Um, so some people are cutting back and stopping, other people are drinking more heavily, and it's the heavy drinkers who are at most risk of running into harm who are the ones who are drinking most heavily. So there'll be more evidence to come, but that's how it looks at the moment.
0: And um, What about people who are alcohol dependent? Are they classified in the higher risk category for COVID, i.e. should they be shielding at home?
1: They are not on the formal government shielding list by, by, by virtue of their alcohol consumption or their alcohol dependence. Many of them will have comorbidities. You know, they tend to be a pretty uh, ill group generally. Many will have COPD, cigarette smoking, and alcohol. dependence tend to go together. They'll be increased risk in the longer term of various cancers. Um, and in fact, we've um, recently just seen some some audit data for, from from Glasgow showing really very high mortality rates amongst the heaviest drinkers. So the actually it was a biochemical study looking at magnesium levels, but the important thing was they followed up people who presented to accident emergency departments at one of the big Glasgow hospitals with alcohol dependence, and they followed them up, and about one in six of, of, of those people had died uh, in the subsequent 12 months. Um, we had similar findings from a, a study which was looking at minimum unit price. Um, but I think this is a this is a group with very high morbidity and mortality. So they're not on a shielding list by virtue of their, of their alcohol dependence, but they uh, they are a group that have, have very poor health outcomes.
0: Um, do you have any thoughts about whether now is a good time for people who are dependent on alcohol to be trying to cut down? For example, if, if as a general psychiatrist, if I had someone who, who was considering that, would your advice to be to perhaps hold on till after the pandemic or, or is now a good time to try?
1: I think if the person's thinking now oh, is a good time to try, then that's something that should be encouraged and should go with. There are very few situations, very rare that you would advise someone not to give it a go. But I think the important thing is that if they have a trial, they do that in a, in a organised and structured way. And, and hopefully we'll come on to talk a bit about that. But I think in general, if someone is making a good quality decision that they want to try to to cut down or quit, then that's a thing that should be encouraged. There are some indications of higher risk in people who would need to be particularly careful and particularly cautious, um, and that I think would be you know would be part of your assessment and, and would then influence the kind of advice that you give to people. But I think, you know, your question is a good one other situations where you'd say to someone, this is a bad idea, don't do this. Um, I think, for instance, if you knew that you had a, you know, planned hospital admission coming up the following week, or if you had a supervised home detoxification that you could start within the next few days, um, I think it would be appropriate to, to say to people, well, wait until we have these supports in place. But very often these supports are not in place. That's certainly true during the COVID crisis, but it was true before the COVID crisis as well. You know, we know that there's a huge unmet need for alcohol support. So in general, I think if someone is keen to cut down, they've made a good quality decision, then in in general your role should be to encourage them to do that and try to help them to find a way to to do that. That's minimising the risk of cutting back.
0: You mentioned that there might be some people who would, perhaps be at higher risk of of trying to detox at home are there any specific groups who, who you might advise against for example if someone is is drinking above a certain level or if someone has a certain medical or psychiatric problem are there, are there any kind of clear rules on that or would it just depend on on the case at hand
1: um i think there are indicators but it would depend on the, on the case at hand. So in the nice guideline on alcohol dependence, which is probably maybe four or five years old, they took the view that at 15 units a day, that started to be the consumption level at which there was significant risk of, of withdrawal. So that would be, you know, half bottle of spirits, bottle and a half of, of, of wine. Um, you know, six, seven pints of regular strength beer, that that kind of level of, of, of consumption, two meters of strong cider. Uh, so fifteen units was was judged by Nice to be the, the consumption point at which risk started to be to to, to to be significant. And over thirty was seen as particularly higher. So Nice's advice was that it's safer to detoxify people over 30 units a, a day in residential facility if you had that available. But very often those are not available. Um, and uh, so we're advising, you know, people to, to try to find a way to, to do this safely. So consumption level is, is one indication and withdrawal risk increases risk of complications of withdrawal increases with increasing consumption, but so does risk of alcohol harm increase. So the, the heavier drinkers are at a delicate balance of risk if you like. The other important indicators would be previous history. Um, and one thing I think is, a, is an, a, a useful notion for these steady heavy drinking people is the notion of the expert patient. So people will often have been you know drinking at high levels for some time they'll be quite skilled at knowing how to manage that they'll be quite skilled at knowing how to manage the detoxification and that of course I think you want to encourage with patients you want them to feel that they understand their situation and actually to have a sense of agency a sense of control about about managing that so you would always want to to know what the patient's previous experience had been and we'd want them to feel that they have a good understanding of of what their previous detoxification experience had been. So bad experience of previous withdrawals would would be another group to be particularly careful with. People with serious uh, physical comorbidity, um, so people with compensated liver disease, people with heart failure, Uh, People who who have an active infectious disease, whether that's COVID or something else, would be other high risk groups. Um, And while there's nothing specific about about psychiatric comorbidity, that adds to other withdrawal, if someone, for instance, has a previous history of psychosis, uh, then you you would want to be particularly cautious about that group as well.
0: So you've mentioned already the um, guidelines that have been put together to to help people during the COVID pandemic in in managing alcohol use at home and safely cutting down or stopping. Do you think you might be able to summarise the advice that is in those guidelines and on how we might um, advise patients to do that safely?
1: So the consultation where you're advising a patient to self-manage their detoxification I think is usefully thought about by considering what you want the outcome to be and then working backwards. And I think what you want the outcome to be is for the patient to feel that they understand their drinking, that they understand their withdrawals, that they have the competency to assess that and that they're confident about their ability to to manage that. Essentially, you want them to be tapering their alcohol consumption, I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. But you want them to feel confident that they are, you know, in charge of the situation and they understand what, what, what's likely to happen. So the process that we've advised patients is that they should be have a good understanding of, if you like, their baseline alcohol consumption. So if there's someone who's a steady drinking pattern uh, that doesn't vary much day to day, they, they may already know that. Um, Or you may ask people to keep a diary for perhaps three days or so would be a reasonable length of time to establish, if you like, their their baseline alcohol consumption. Um, I think once they've they've done that, our suggestion is to do a couple of things to prepare uh, for detoxification. Firstly, to ensure that their nutrition is at at a good level as much as it's able to be. Um, And I think... Uh, Both during the COVID situation, but also in general, they should tell someone that they're, that they're doing it. Now that actually may be their GP, um, depending on what services are around, or it may be a supportive family friend. It may be someone from a mutual support group that they're involved with. So um, we would encourage people to assess the situation, make some plans and tell people uh, what they're going to do. In terms of the actual mechanics of, of, of the reduction, that really is something that people are best to do at, at their at their own pace. Um, but in, in general, a reduction over about eight days um, is is likely to be, to be to be safe. So reducing by about a quarter every two days. So the person who's drinking, uh, for instance, you know, eight cans of strong lager a day would aim to be at six. Six cans, you know, by, by by day three, then to reduce to, to four cans, which is half the previous level by by um, day five, and then gradually reducing for over the over the next two to four days. Um, if people find that they're getting with withdrawal symptoms and tremor and sweating would be the predominant ones, then they're they're best to go a little bit more slowly. Um, it's often a good idea actually for people to if you like, load their dose in in the morning and in the evening and reduce their consumption, start by reducing consumption in the in the middle of the day, because mornings and evenings tend to be the, the, the most problematic times. Uh, so that is what we would encourage people to do. But the very important message to people is that they need to be systematic and organized about this. Um, so this maybe means them approaching their drinking a rather different way than what they've done um it's important that they maintain good nutrition and fluids um over over the period of, of detox um and perhaps they need to do some planning to to make sure they have food in the house before they do it um if someone gets into a situation which can happen during withdrawal where as part of the withdrawal process they get a lot of nausea and they're unable to keep uh, food and fluids down then that is a potentially serious situation uh, there are risks uh, of the Wernicke cross syndrome and so people should be advised that if that happens that is a a situation where they probably do need to call for urgent medical help. Just
0: on the note of nutrition there should people um, be prescribed thiamine or other vitamins during this process? Uh,
1: Yes thiamine is always a good idea for Heavy drinkers, indeed, my, my own practice, and I find people understood this, that if someone's a heavy drinker who's not doing well in tackling their alcohol problem, being on maintenance oral thiamine is a good idea for them, eh, whether they're detoxifying or not. Um, so thiamine, alcohol does interfere with thiamine absorption, but it doesn't completely knock it out altogether. So a divided dose of, for instance, 100 milligrams of thiamine three times a day is, you know, can be enough to, to maintain people's thiamine, thiamine levels. So that's, I think, certainly a good idea if people can get a prescription for thiamine tablets or if they were able to buy thiamine over the counter that had, had a decent dosage. If on taking history, you feel that people have had either a confirmed past history or a likely past history, of uh, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. They are particularly high risk um, and that would probably count as a medical emergency if you thought that they were developing those encephalopathy symptoms again. uh, They need parenteral vitamins to rapidly increase their vitamin levels and that uh, cannot generally be safely done at home. Um, And that is a thing that most general hospitals in in the UK, I think all would hope would accept that as a medical emergency and something they need to be involved in. So maintenance oral thiamine I think is a good idea um, if there are no particular risks. If people are malnourished, if they have signs of, of confusion, if they have signs of ataxia, if they have signs of, of diplopia, then um, that, that's a medical emergency and that needs appropriate attention.
0: And Are there any other sort of red flag symptoms or instances where people ought to seek urgent medical help?
1: Um, I think alcohol-related seizures are a difficult one because they are tend to be somewhat un- unpredictable. Sometimes they, they don't link well to withdrawal symptoms. So someone apparently being managing their withdrawal either themselves or with assistance fairly well, and then a seizure will come out of the blue. So if someone said a previous history of seizures, um, it's you know, certainly best for them to have a benzodiazepine prescription over this this period. They may be able to get that from the general practitioner. In an ideal situation, there would be supervised detoxification, perhaps a specialist nurse going in to visit, but that's often not been possible during COVID. So, yes, if someone has a previous history of seizures, then it would certainly be advisable for them to have benzodiazepine cover, perhaps in addition to self-managed reduction schedule that uh, we were discussing earlier. One group we need particularly to be to be thought about are older people. Um, there's been a general trend over the last 20 years in the UK that heavy drinking has, if anything, declined amongst younger groups and increased in, in older age groups. Um, so the risk of older people, particularly if they have serious health conditions of detoxification is higher. So that's a group who would need to be, you know, particularly cautious about approaching this. Doesn't mean they can't do it, but I think you would want to be very clear that they understood the process involved and, and had, had good supports. Another group that, of course, would always be high risk in, in, in people's minds would be uh, women who are pregnant, who are drinking heavily. Uh, so we know that most women in the UK will cut back and and many will stop drinking during pregnancy. The group who struggle to do that are people who are likely to have significant alcohol problems, and they're a group who are going to need, I think, a lot of support from both antenatal services and and ideally from substance abuse services as well.
0: So just moving on from from that, I was also wondering... Where we might be able to direct people at the moment for advice about alcohol cutting down or about their drinking. Um, and I wondered what the kind of situation was with support groups at the moment. Like a lot of people get support from, uh, groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and, and what might be happening with those at the moment.
1: Yes. Well, there's a, a number of sources of, of online advice. Um, and. I think it's it's been very interesting how quickly those have developed uh, just over the past few weeks. So that's great. We need to remember a lot of people are not online, and there is a digital divide here. It's, it's a factor in health inequalities, and 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 may become greater as time goes by. So uh, there are a number of good sources of online advice. The college has has uh, advice on on its uh, patient section of the website. My own organisation. Uh, Scottish Health Action and Alcohol Problems at SHAP, that's with 2As.org, dot, dot um, and the Alcohol Health Alliance and others. So there's a number of sources of, of, of advice from various uh, medical organisations and from charities. The mutual support sector has been very impressive in the way that they have have moved online. So there are enormous numbers of people in touch with mutual support Alcoholics Anonymous is the biggest of those, and AA has has moved online and has been using you know Zoom, Skype, and the, and, and and some of the other software. So I think that's worked very well. I, I think it's possible that it's working well for people already engaged with the fellowships, with the networks. Um, I think it may be more difficult for for new people. Uh, coming to join. And again, I, I know that people in the fellowships are aware of that. They're trying their best to phone people and reach out and, and, and so on. But I suspect it's perhaps the new people who are particularly missing the the, the human contact of, of of going into a meeting. But uh, mutual support organisations have done a great job, uh, the recovery movement generally, in moving as much as they can uh, of, of the mutual support online.
0: Great, that's that's really good to know. And I think we might be coming towards the end of the podcast now, but I just wonder before we finish, uh, do you have any other final thoughts or any take home messages for the listeners on this topic?
1: We developed this guidance in the setting of the COVID um, crisis and the fact that services were likely to be diminished, but that's against the background of services being inadequate anyway. Um Alcohol services, particularly in England, have had a difficult time over the last uh, decade or so. In particular, the last five years, there have been some policy changes, some organisational changes that have been problematic. And Public Health England issued a, a report on this about eighteen months ago about the decline in in alcohol services, showing that the number of people accessing them had declined by about twenty percent from a from a, a low base. Between 2013 and 2017. So many people were not getting a service anyway, and that is, is a real difficulty. Um, and we, I think, I know I'm speaking for many of my colleagues in the addictions faculty of the college, we would like to see that situation change. Um, so alcohol, of course, is, is ubiquitous, and many people working in all kinds of mental health set- settings are going to be dealing with alcohol. Um, but we're hoping that actually the attention that COVID has, has brought to this issue may actually provide a platform to enable us to help to improve what's been a pretty long-standing situation now of alcohol services being 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 not well developed and uh, needing to be improved. In the UK, we have been very good at producing guidelines. The nice guidelines are looked to the, the world over, including the guidelines on alcohol dependence. Uh, but unfortunately, we've not been so good at actually implementing those, what this practice should should look like. And that's certainly true in the field of alcohol dependence. So the NICE guideline is is, is excellent. It's a world class, world standard publication. Uh, but the unfortunate thing is the implementation of that uh, and the provision of those nice quality, nice standard services. They really just have not been there in, in many parts of the UK and particularly in England.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I think that's a really good point just to to think about that the advice and that we've been discussing today and, and the issue about helping people cut down or detox at home is obviously relevant during COVID. But it's actually something that is uh, unfortunately a reality for many people anyway during normal times. Um, so thank you very much, Dr. Rice. It's been really great okay. to have you on the podcast and um, thank you All very right. much for giving up your time. And um, just to mention, Dr. Rice was joining us from rural Perthshire. So if there were <laughs> any problems with the audio quality at any point, it may be that we had um, not the best connection we could have. But I think we, we managed to get everything that we needed. So that was great.
1: Well, thanks, Jennifer. That that was uh, I very much enjoyed speaking to you, and I hope that uh, what we discussed will be of of interest and value to people.
0: And finally, remember, if you are a CPD online subscriber, you can complete the short online test and gain CPD points for this podcast. So,
1: um, thanks again, Dr. Peter Rice. Okay, thank you.